to the Lord in prayer and let's have fun with this text, but also get the girth of it, of course. Lord, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you, Lord, for every person who comes on a night like this. And Lord, I know it's been a long day of work for a lot of people and all of that, but Lord, we come because we want to be in fellowship with you and with each other and we want to be in your word together because we know we'll be better for it. So I just pray right now, Lord, that you would do that, please. <clears throat> Let tonight be a perfect night spent. We just pray you would draw us near to you. And Lord, just strip away all the stuff that's just icky so that we could be, uh, we could hear your voice. Thank you, Lord, for my precious brothers and sisters. And thank you for the way that you carry us through all the dramas of the day. And I pray now, Lord, you would have your way as we get in your word in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Kings chapter 6, starting in verse 24. It happened after this that Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria, and indeed they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for eight shekels of silver, and a fourth a cob of dove's droppings for five shekels of silver. Then as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, The lord does not help you. Where can I find help for you? the threshing floor, the wine press. Then the king said to her, What is troubling you? And she answered him, the wo This woman said to me, Give me your son that we may eat him today, and we'll eat my son tomorrow. <coughs> so we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, Give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. Now it happened. When the king heard the words of the woman, that he tore his clothes, and as he passed by on the wall, the people looked and there underneath, he had sackcloth in his body. Then he said, God, do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. Start there. We are now in a particular period of time, roughly again about 848 B.C. Between the civil war of Israel and Judah and the time of Israel's fall is almost exactly 200 years ago. And we're about 80 years into that. Ahab's second son, Yehoram, now is in the north. And Yehoshaphat's son, Yehoram, in the south, who is married to Jezebel's daughter, Atalia. Ben-Hadad, I want to remind you, back in 1 Kings 20, he besieged Samaria 10 years ago. And he lost two battles, one up on the hill and one in the plains. But the king was released. Last year, the same king had his chief commander healed by Elisha. Just before this, their band of raiders were blinded, were brought, and blessed with a feast, and then sent back. And yet, even after all of this, the king still besieges Samaria. It would be fair to say that he has had every decent reason to stop fighting Israel. But yet, in all of that, he hasn't. And Isaiah 50, I'm sorry, 524, it says this, because they rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised his word, the Holy One of Israel, and he talks about them shriveling. He talks about their lack of fruitfulness and their decay as a result of it. And Luke chapter 7, verse 30, it tells us that the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, refusing to be baptized by John the Baptist. Stephen had said to those of the synagogue of the freedmen and the religious leaders who stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. And God speaks in Isaiah 65, verse 2, reiterated in Romans 10, 21, when he says, I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good. Jeremiah says the same in essence in, a, in chapter 5, verse 23. God will reach out to you, but that doesn't mean you will accept it. His word can be resisted or rejected, 
His will can be rejected. His Holy Spirit can be rejected. And His love can be refused. But God is not with God is not with any fault in any of it. And in Ben Chadad's case, he has no reason to declare war on Israel or on the God of Israel. I don't even know. I mean, is his chief commander, Nechaman, still his chief commander? Is this guy going to have to lead this brigade? And we talked last time because in that situation where the raiders came, that's one of the kind of battles we face. It's that battle of, well, it's that battle that comes hard and heavy and surprises you and blindsides you. And the next thing you know, and you just know at that moment, you have to whip up spiritual adrenaline and you fight with everything you've got and you win. You take it to the king and you watch victory. And I'll be honest, that is actually the least of my concerns when it comes to battles. For whatever reason, some of us are kind of clutch players and some of us aren't. But then some have greater strength in areas like this. And there will be battles that you just won't see coming. Temptations, situations where you have the opportunity to fall and you just, it seemed like you blinked and it was just coming straight at you. And at that moment, you just have to tighten up your shoes and you go for it. You get on your knees and you pray and you seek the Lord and you pray for that heroic moment. But besieging, that's another story altogether. Now again, most cities are built on hills for gravity's sake. It helps you. But no water is usually up there. And this is before Hezekiah. So that means it's before Hezekiah's tunnel. Because you can't have Hezekiah's tunnel before Hezekiah. It just doesn't make any sense. Hezekiah's tunnel, by the way, was a burrowed hole that allowed them to retrieve water from the Gihon Spring. Now to this point, they don't have and so what you do is you cut off their water source and you cut off their food source. Besiegings can happen for as long as decades. We've heard of situations, by the way, east of here in Iraq, Iran, that lasted 23 years of besieging. The people would fight sooner or later. Here's the thing. You just try to write it out, you try to write it out, and you try to write it out. And you just kind of hope sooner or later hope will come. The Lord will show up. The problem is in a situation like this is that you wait thinking you've been out-stubborn the enemy and by the time you actually go out to fight because you can't handle it anymore you are way too weak to fight. Here's the problem. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 38 for a moment. I want to show you how much of this. Deuteronomy chapter 38. Oh, what am I talking about? Oh, good. Good. 28. Deuteronomy 28. Oh, well. Yeah, how did that work for you? Did that work out well? Yeah, that just shows you how on top of it I am. Thank you. And I even know that. Alright. Deuteronomy 28. Let's go to where there's actually scripture. You probably are familiar with the fact that God talks about if you obey me, you'll be blessed and blessed and blessed and blessed and blessed and blessed. People, by the way, don't like the if-then statement. They just like to kind of cash the paycheck but not show up for work. Right? And it's like, look, if you obey me, I'll bless you in the field, I'll bless you in the hill, I'll bless you in the valley, I'll bless you in the city, I'll bless you in the field. I'll bless you rising up, I'll bless you laying down, I'll bless you as you come, I'll bless you as you go. You'll get blessed, 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 blessed. I'll bless your kneading bowl. But if you disobey me, you'll be cursed in all the same places you were blessed. It is in this context God tells us Deuteronomy 28. And Jaden, will you read this verses 52 to 54, please? But if you... Oh, 52, sorry. They will besiege you in all your towns until your height until your high fortified walls in which you trusted come down to all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you. I have to go right through 54. 
in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. The man who is the most tender and refined among you, with a grudge food to his brother, with a wife he embraces, and to the last of the children whom he has left. It says that he will not even give any of his own children his flesh to eat. Now, notice what it says there. In your disobedience, it'll get to the point of this besieging, to the point where you even eat your own children. Strange as it is, when you read that the first time in Deuteronomy 28, if you read it in 38, you have a different Bible. But if you read it in Deuteronomy 28, obviously, you read it and you go, that could, that's just, could it ever get that bad? And now it has. It has gotten to the point where this is what we're looking at. It says in verse 25, and again, here's the problem. This is a battle that, and here's the difference. Now I'm not saying every time you see a situation of waiting, this is what you have. But in a case like this, this is completely at the king's disobedience. Odd that it is that he's waiting for God to move. It says in verse 25, there was a great famine in Samaria, and indeed they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for eight, I'm sorry, for 80 shekels. Now, is there anyone who knows, by the way, how much food is on a donkey's head? What do you get on a donkey's head? A bit of brains and an eyeball, and that's about as far as you can get. Maybe you tell them if you're really brave. And it's going to cost you 50 pounds to get it. But if you think, well, that's gross, who actually wants a dove bar? Well, this is a different kind. This, it tells us, by the way, it's a fourth of a cob of dove droppings for five shekels. So let's just put that into perspective. A, a, a quarter of a cob is roughly a very large toothpaste tube. And you have to pay three pounds for it. People are eating bird poop. You got that, right, from this? Now it is important to recognize the king is still in ardent rebellion against the living God. The people are still worshipping Baal. The people are bowing down to the gold cows in Bethel and in Tel Dan. And these two women have this conflict, which is an understandable one in this situation. And it tells us, as a result of that, the king says, how in the world am I supposed to help you with this? In verse 30, notice, by the way, though his mourning is private, he is too proud to let you know that this really affects him. By, by the way, I, I get that. As a guy, you don't want to let people know that something's really affecting you. The problem is, is that the one time you, that you do that the most is when you're in rebellion because you, it's in essence you're too stubborn to let anyone know that this is, this is hurting. And so you're just going to keep fighting God on it. And yet what he's seeing is, is that his actions are affecting the whole nation. And by the way, the nation's at rebellion too. He's leaving the minute. But look at verse 31. God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shiphat, remains on him today. Isn't it amazing how quickly you can blame someone else for the consequences of your own sin? The irony of the whole thing is, how does he think killing Elisha is going to fix this? How is Elisha the problem here? Do you remember his predecessor, Eliyahu? And how Eliyahu, by the way, stood in front of this guy's dad and said, it's not going to rain for three and a half years. And the king, <laughs> this guy's dad, was like, oh, you're the troublemaker. He's like, I'm the troublemaker. How am I the troublemaker? You're the one who's disobeying God, and that's where all of this blessing comes from. How in the world is killing Elisha going to fix any of this? Or might I just say this way, how is blaming anyone going to make it any better? It is amazing how quickly we can do that. Who's, whose fault is it? Here's the danger as a Christian. Well, let me say it this way. In every car accident, two emergency in any serious car accident, two emergency services show up there. The policeman and the paramedic. Now, the policeman has a specific responsibility. His responsibility is to find out who did something wrong. Who, his job is to find out who's at fault. But the paramedic's job is to find out who is hurt. Now, when we show up and it's a situation that's clearly a banger, which person do we show up to be first? Do we show up and go, first of all, who's hurt? 
I've learned this from Jesus, that when Peter sunk in the water, Jesus rescued him first, and then he rebuked him later. And I think that's necessary, because let's face it, if Jesus just rebuked him, he'd have to raise him from the dead. He wasn't going to make it long. And I love the fact that he here what's clear is that this king, and when you're running from God, it's everybody else's fault. Now that doesn't mean that they, are, they can't be a contributor to your situation. But you still have the final say. I have sisters that have issues because of things that have happened to them that are legitimate. But now what they choose to do with them is going to be their choice. Now that doesn't mean they're not haunted or they're not going to have problems with it. But the point is, a lot of what they went through, I went through. And in the end of it all, trying to blame somebody else will never solve your problem and it will never make anything better. Now, isn't it interesting also that this is the one place where he uses God's name? God do so to me also. Isn't it ironic that he uses God's name because he wants to kill one of God's people who's actually doing God's will? It's interesting because in John 16, when we'll be God willing on Sunday, it tells us in verse 2 that they'll put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you actually thinks they're doing God a service. In other words, they genuinely believe what they're doing is right and God is endorsing their behavior by killing a Christian. Because the time is coming, I want to warn you. So, the king has said now, alright, let's go get this guy. Let's go kill Elisha. Verse 32. But Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him, which tells us that the other leaders, by the way, seem to be with Elisha at the moment. And the king sent a man ahead of him. But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, Do you now see this son of a murderer? has sent someone to take away my head? Look, and by the way, notice he knows exactly what it is that he was going for. Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold fast the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still talking with them, well, then there was the messenger coming down to him, and then the king said, Surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait any longer? For the way should I wait for the Lord any longer? Now, <clears throat> by the way, do you remember who's besieging the city? Remember what his name is? Ben Hadad. Right. Here's the irony. Why is Ben, I mean, how is Ben Hadad still alive? Because this guy's dad let him go ten years ago. Remember that? The reason I say that is, is that it's interesting. Nobody seems to be blaming, blaming Ben Hadad, who, by the way, happens to be the one besieging the city. Which, by the way, as a result of that, happens to be a famine. Which, by the way, as a result of that, people are eating their babies. Huh, nobody's actually blaming Ben Chabad for that at all. Nobody seems to be blaming the king. But they want to blame Elisha. He's not besieging the city. Now, remember what Ben Chabad was told? He was told when he thought there was a mole, they said, actually, there's a prophet in Israel, his name is Elisha, and he tells the king of Israel, what you say in your bedroom. Remember that? And somehow in all of this, this guy's trying to besiege the situation, but now it's strange because it seems like this king of Israel thinks he's going to sneak up on Elisha. Now, what guy is in his right mind be able to do this if this guy seems to be getting all the info? This guy's constantly getting intel. And yet in all of this, everyone keeps trying to sneak up on him like it's going to happen. Notice in verse 33, by the way, it says, and while he was still talking with them, there was the messenger coming down to him, and the king said, Surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why shall I wait for the Lord any longer? And it's amazing, because am I waiting for God to actually finally do something or when he's actually just waiting for me to repent? He does want us miserable when we're running from him. And it's serious, like, I am waiting. I'm waiting on the Lord. Now look at Every time you go through hard times, does not mean that God's doing that because you need to repent. But when you're walking with the Lord, you don't spend your time living your whole life second-guessing that. There's beauty in it. So let's go with the situation where God may be using it to refine, 
But what's interesting is, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, what becomes clear and evident is, is that God uses trials in our lives to do several things. One is to bring others to salvation. Another is to encourage believers. And third is to purify our own faith. And if that be the case, you realize when we are going through a trial or a hard time, the most easy place to go, the default, and what the enemy would love for you to do is to swell up and die like the natives of Malta expected Paul when he was serving after the shipwreck. You remember that? In the book of Acts. And I think those are actually perfect things. Now, let's face it, the guy's been in a, it's been a storm for a couple weeks straight. Everyone's been nauseous and sick all over the place. Finally, they get in a shipwreck and they wind up on this island. And Paul, going above and beyond all of that, while everyone else is still kissing the ground, is grabbing sticks so that he can help keep the fire warm so nobody gets hypothermia. And while this happens, a snake bites him. Remember the story? And which one of us would be like, Are you kidding me? I've done everything right. Come on now. Not a single person was lost. This has been a really rough ride for two weeks. We've all barked our guts out. All of this has happened. We finally get it. Oh, I'm still trying to serve. And I get bit. And it says the natives watched him intently to see whether he would swell up and die. But I say that's exactly what happens when you get bit. That the natives of this earth, the unbelievers, are going to watch you to see if you swell up. And what does it mean to swell up? You get full of yourself. And die. Because that's what they would do. So you go through this trial, this hardship, this challenge. And at that moment, you are in Premier League. At that moment, you are actually in prime time. And with that, they are watching. Because let's face it, when's the only time you can show pure joy? Pure joy. The only time you can is when you have nothing to be happy about. When's the only time you can show pure peace? Well, when you actually are completely in discordant situation. And that's when they go, well, let's see if your God's real now. It's funny. God will allow those situations to save the people we beg God to save. And if that was necessary, and we were on our game, we'd recognize it. So the next hardship, the next challenge, the next thing that you go, are you kidding me? My challenge is, Think of the first three people that are closest to you you've been praying for them to be saved. And pray for them at that moment. And be ready. Because God has thrown you center stage. I mean, if things are going awesome and you're praising God, I think the same accusation could be done that the enemy did about Job. Remember, he goes, of course he praises you. Look at how much you blessed him. And this world's under the enemy's sway, according to 1 John 5. Just take all that away and he'll curse you. So when all that stuff seems to be taken away and you don't even have your health and things are rough, when you're thrown in the inner prison, are you singing songs to God, praising Him? Because Paul was. Now, all of that said, here in this situation, the king thinks if he could just kill Elisha, things are going to be, this will be solved. So he sends a servant ahead of time, I remind you, and the king's like, why in the world do I'm taking matters into my own hands? Verse, chapter 7, verse 1. Then Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. And I was speaking to the king. Thus and the servant. Thus says the Lord. Tomorrow about this time. A sea of, fly, of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel. And two seas of barley for a shekel. At the gate of Samaria. Now don't miss this. Because I remind you. Look at what we were paying for last time. We were paying. How much did, were you paying for a donkey's head? Yeah, and you were paying 80 shekels. And one shekel is going to cover this much flour, and I'll talk about that in a moment. How about dove droppings? Five shekels. You with me on this? Now, don't miss this. A shekel is less than a pound. As a matter of fact, there was a time when it was about, to this day, the NIS, the New Israeli shekel, is roughly about 60 pence. Actually, there was a time when it was down to about 20 pence. Now, how much is a sea of fine flour? First of all, let me ask you, what does it mean that it's fine flour? Does it mean it's really good flour? What does it mean that it's fine flour? 
Yeah, it's well sifted. It's ground, which means you're getting a lot more of it. So a sea, in its simplest sense, is roughly a kitchen sink full. Now, how much, when you think about the bag of flour you buy, think about how much you make with that bag. Then think, how many of these bags do I need to fill my kitchen sink? He's going, right now, you're basically paying 50 pounds for a donkey head. You're tossing out a fiber for a little bit of dove droppings. Because, but let me tell you what, tomorrow at this time, you will bust a pound and you will have a sink full of flour, fine flour. Or if you want, you can have two sink fulls of barley. Now, Elisha, notice, wasn't the one who brought the curse, but he was the one who brought the promise. The offer still comes from the prophet. This is what's going to happen, you guys. Now, please hear me on this. Just because the challenge drags on and on and on and on doesn't mean that the solution will take that long as well. Things could flip just like that. And God does that over and over and over again in Scripture. And we're like, well, maybe it'll be just a little bit of something and a little bit of something else and maybe it'll get better. Maybe it will. Or maybe God could just flip the whole thing instantly. And he can do that. Now, whether that be 400 years of slavery, now granted, that would take some time because God is systematically going to destroy every god worshipped in Egypt or a situation like this where he does an incident. Now the officer, I'm assuming that was the guy who ran ahead of the king, or unless he was just the one that happens to be there so the king can lean on him. So the officer in whom, whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God. He said, look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And he said, in fact, well, oh. so he goes, this is impossible. There's no possible way this could happen. Because if flour fell from the sky, we would never be able to have this. And he says, well, I'll tell you what. In fact, you will see it with your eyes, but you will not eat of it. Faithless eyes will look, but never take. Now, there were four leprous men. And they were at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we'll enter the city, the famine's in the city, we'll die there. If we sit here, we'll die also. Now therefore let us surrender to the army of the Syrians, and if they keep us alive, we'll live, and if they kill us, we'll only die. So here are our options. Die, die, or maybe die. So let's go with maybe die. What do you think? Now, Leviticus 13.46 tells us, by the way, that if a person's going to be leprous, they need to actually dwell alone and dwell outside the camp. So they're outside the camp, in a sense, by being at the city gate. And they kind of look. Now, Jewish tradition, by the way, actually says this is Gehazi and his family. Remember that guy? That was Elisha's servant, who, by the way, was made a leper. I can't tell you what it is or isn't. It's a 50% chance either it is or it isn't. But I do know that he is a leper, so that does apply. So here's the idea. There's four of these guys. I don't know whether they're related or not, the Bible doesn't say. But they're at the gate and they kind of look and they go, let's just, let's just, I'm so tired of waiting here, let's just take a look and here are our options. We go in there, we die, we stay here, we die, we go over there, maybe we'll die, let's, why don't we try that? If they kill us, we're, we're already dead as far as every other option. Let's try it. First five. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians, and when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, there was no one there. Now, I bet you none of them looked at each other and went, who knows, maybe all of the Syrian army that have been waiting for years now for us to starve to death, they probably all ran away like a bunch of frightened little girls. No, I bet they probably didn't say that. Verse 6, But the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear, notice, the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact. Their tents, their horses, donkeys. Remember the donkeys? We were eating their heads just a moment ago for 50 pounds. And they fled for their lives. You are aware of the fact that God can make you hear something. You remember in Acts chapter 2, 
when the Holy Spirit came upon 120 people praying in the upper room, you know the first thing that was brought them to attention? The sound of a mighty rushing wind. That's interesting. It never says they felt it. Let's be honest. That would be even weirder. We look and not a hair is moving on anybody's head. And you're hearing, we're oh! looking around going, this is, this is weird. But God knows how to do that. By the way, in 2 Kings, chapter 18, by the way, Hezekiah, who will be in essence the last reigning king before Israel actually takes the dive into captivity. He is being surrounded by the king of Assyria. Another besieging situation. And the guy that's hired for him is a guy named Rabshakeh. Rabshakeh. And Rabshakeh appears to be a title, by the way. And the guy, if you remember the situation, he's like, oh, well, you know, we've been invincible. We've killed everybody in our path. What makes you think you're going to be any different than your mama this and, you know, that kind of stuff. He's just throwing it all out. And, of course, the king gets this letter and he's like, and, of course, the guys at the gate, they do this great thing. They're like, could you not talk in Hebrew? I mean, everybody hears what you're saying. Why don't you just talk like in your language so like we could understand, but not everyone else gets freaked out? He's like, I'm saying this to freak you guys out. Of course, I'm speaking Hebrew. So of course, he's speaking in their language. And of course, at this point, the king gets a letter and he opens it up, this scroll, and he goes, God, I don't know what in the world to do with this. And Isaiah shows up. And Isaiah shows up and he goes, you know what? It looks pretty bleak, but I want you to know you have nothing to be afraid of. He goes, this guy, this king that's heading this whole campaign, he's going to hear about a rumor. And then he's going to go back, and then he's going to get killed there. He's going to clearly going to, he's going to go back to Croydon, and he's going to get knifed. In essence, the Croydon part's added, but it's the same idea. <laughs> now, what I find interesting is, I don't know whether, I mean, he's going to hear a rumor. Where did that rumor come from? Somewhere he hears it. But by the way, it isn't just that God can make the enemy hear things. He can make him see things. Do you remember the situation back when the king of the south, at that point, um, was, uh, took Jehoshaphat, it was Jehoram and, Ye- and Yehoshaphat, and they went and they went around to go and attack the Moabites, and they gathered Edom, the king of Edom, and remember they were, they were dying in the wilderness, and we're like, oh, there's no water, we got to dig a bunch of ditches, and then he made water miraculously appear, and the enemy looked and he went, oh, that's blood? That's blood? They've killed each other, let's go to the spoils. And they, you know what happens when you go to the spoils? When you think everyone's dead? You leave all your weapons behind, because you need your hand and your everything to basically carry all your st- all the stuff. So think about what this would be like for Israel. Israel's there with their they, they, they're now drinking water. They're refreshed. They've got all their weapons in their hands. And these guys have come running out of ah let's go let's go and they don't even have weapons on them. They're like wow this was way too easy. God knows what to do. It tells us in Proverbs twenty eight one the wicked flee though no one pursues but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Well, we need to recognize that. So what happens? The entire Syrian army that had been camped around them fled like little sissy. Here's the most amazing part to me. Not only did the, the Syrians hear this noise and it made them flee, but somewhere in it, none of Israel actually heard the Syrians flee. Did you find that a little weird? You'd think enough screaming and throwing all your stuff off would be enough for someone to go, that's a lot of noise over there. Unless God had them not here. Uh, and strangely enough, who of all people but a bunch of lepers that are like, well, we're going to die anyways. We might as well go there just to see. And they so they show up and it's like everything's empty and you're like, okay, that's a little creepy right now. That's not what we expected. So it says in verse 8, so the, these lepers, when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, then they went into one tent, and they ate and drank, and they carried from it silver and gold and clothing, and they went and hid it. Went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent, and carried some from there also, and went and hid it. And then they said to one another, oh, we are not doing right here. This, is, this day is a day of good news, and if we remain silent, and we wait until morning light, well, some punishment will come upon us. Now, therefore, let us go and tell the king's household. This is the crux of the whole thing for us. These guys show up, and there is like coffee, and it's hot, or in my case, tea. There's, there are, there's a roast fresh out of the oven sitting on the table. There's barbecued meat all over the place. And these guys show up, and they're like, you know, and if you want, there's a vegetable. Uh, and they look, and they're like, oh my goodness. And they just 
gorge themselves because you would too. And then they're looking, they're like, dude, check this out. This guy's got an Armani suit. I think it's in Bruno's. Dude, you should wear this. Right? Oh, check this out. Oh, this is nice. And so they're like, well, what do we do with this stuff? We better go hide it. No, why, why would you hide it? Because if everyone else knows that you've been to this tent and then they see that, they're going to know. Right? Let's go check out another tent. Oh, look at here. Meat pies. Abundance. Yes. Oh, and gravy. It's still hot. And mash. Yes, I'm trying to meet you right there. I like actually meat pies. And, oh, and they're like, I can't even eat anymore, but I'm gonna. And we're eating. We're eating. Oh, check this out. Dan, this is like extra tall and skinny, you know, stuff. This is all you, buddy. Nice. And look at all the jeans. They're like mustard yellow and ketchup red, <laughs> mayonnaise, you know. It's perfect. They're condiment jeans. I learned that from my daughter. She says, all of Dan's clothing involves condiments. <laughs> all jeans. Anyways. And now I'm like, well, we better go hide that, too. How long do you think it takes before we're like, you know, this just doesn't feel right. Everybody else is starving to death. And they have no clue that they can have victory by just walking out those gates. And here we are gorging ourselves. Now, hear me on this. Our first response would be that because, to be honest, it's like, is it real? Is it really real? But what's clear is there is more than any of those lepers could eat. It's always going to be in abundance. So what do we do? If I'm not telling everyone that I'm going to have to hide the spoils from them, or they're going to ask, where'd you get that? So we walk out to this lost world out there that's starving for hope and for peace and for love, and they're buying and they're and you know what they're you know what they're doing is they're taking the closest thing they can find, and you know what it looks like? It looks like bird poop and a donkey head. That's what it looks like. They're scrounging the littlest whatever they can find. A little bit of cheek meat, maybe. That's a hope we can get something out of that. And this is as close as we can get. And we are gorging ourselves. And we go, well, but I know what happens if I go out there and I tell them I have that love and I have that joy and I have that peace that I do have in Christ, I'm going to get mocked for it. But you know, they're going to mock you because they don't believe it's real. But they see that love, joy, and peace coming out of you and they realize it's dripping from your face. And everything changes. But at first, they're going to be really cautious, and they have a good reason to be, because they're like, oh, this is a trap. And there have been traps laid of this sort. We call them religious traps, if you will. But they're like, you know, we can't be quiet anymore. Remember what Jesus said about the man who was given talent, some ten, some five? And so, so remember what the last guy did? He just dug it and he hid it. And in the end of it all, he's like, you know, you did nothing but hide it. No, this isn't right. We need to go tell people. But let me ask you, have you gorged yourself? Have you feasted on love? Have you immersed yourself in peace? Have you been engulfed and wrapped tight in hope and in love and in joy? Because if you haven't, might I suggest we seek the Lord right now and we ask Him for those things. Because if we feel like we're still eking out a little bit here and there and we're just kind of getting things that fall from the table, little orts and crumbs, well then why in the world would we share that? But if we get in an abundance, that's another story. Do you know when we had our first child? Because I had so much love left after trying to dump as much as I could on Suzanne that we needed someone else to dump it on. One, Suzanne's like, we have to have a child and we have to have enough. Do you know why we had got a second child? For the same reason. We couldn't run out. We kept trying to run out. We couldn't run out. We're like, wow, okay, we need more. Then we adopted a whole church. That was you guys, by the way. Now, the reason I say that is, is that when you gorge yourself and you have abundance, sooner or later you're going to want to share. And that's what happens here. Well, let's see how this thing concludes. By the way, I know you know that, how beautiful are the, on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who bring glad tidings, who proclaim salvation, uh, good, uh, good things. 
We say in Zion, your God reigns. God's like, even your feet, which are considered the nastiest parts of most people. Even those are beautiful. So let's go tell people. Let's see how this concludes. Remember, I remind you, by the way, remember how this servant, the one in whose hand the king leaned, he's like, oh, you're going to see it, but you're not going to get any of it. Well, verse 10. So they went and called the gatekeepers in the city, and they told them, said, hey, we went to the Syrian camp. And surprisingly, no one was there. Not a human sound, only horses and donkeys tied in the tents and tech. And the gatekeepers called out, and they told it to the king's household inside. So the king arose in the night and said to his servants, Let me now tell you what the Syrians have done to us. This is the king, because he's an expert. They know that we're hungry. Therefore, they've gone out of the camp and hide themselves in the field, saying, When they come out to the city, we'll catch them alive, and we'll get them into the, we'll get into the city. The king is not a man of faith, even though there is a huge blessing in front of him. And hear me on this. It is obvious in front of him, but he is not going to in faith go for it unless something happens. And so what is he going to do? He's going to send somebody to go find out. He's going to send more scouts. Now, up to this point, he wouldn't even do that. And you're going to tell someone, hey, I want you to believe in Jesus and there's total forgiveness and you can become a new creation, you can be set free. And all of those things that we know to be absolutely true and we just think they're rejecting us. Maybe, to be honest, maybe what they're actually saying is it's too good to be true. I want to believe you, but I can't. I can't believe you because they're just, this just does not make sense because grace doesn't exist in the world as far as they see. And so what happens? We do something. That's why he calls us to do something that nobody else would do, like love our enemies and pray for those who spitefully use us. You realize what that is is showing grace so that they realize it does exist in the world, but it's kind of the market's cornered on Christians. And they see the way we treat each other. And they look and go, so one of his servants, verse 13, answered and he said to him, Please let several men take the five remaining horses we have not eaten, which are left in the city. Look, they may either become like the multitude of Israel that are left in, or indeed they'll become like all the multitude of Israel left from those who are consumed. In other words, either they'll, you know, in the end of it all, they'll come back and starve to death. If not, if it's a lie, or they'll get killed over there. But either way, what have you got to lose at this point but a few more guys? And they're dying anyway. Let's go sit them and see. We're not going to get any better this way. So they take two chariots with horses, and the king sent them in the direction of the Syrian army. And they said, go and see. So they went after them to the Jordan, roughly, by the way, about 25 miles. And indeed, all the road was full of garments, weapons, which the Syrians had thrown away in their haste, because it slows you down from running from the invisible army you can't hear. You can't see, but you can hear. So the messengers returned and told the king. And guess what? Those lepers were telling the truth. There is a camp. Now how long do you think it took for them to get out there and check out the 25 miles and come back? By this point, by the way, we are the only ones who got the hot cakes. And the fresh pie. Then the people went out and plundered the tents. Verse 16. Of the Syrians, so they see a fine flour was sold, I see a like a sink, was now sold for a shekel. And two seeds of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Just like it had been promised. But wait a minute, there was another promise. Yeah, remember that guy that was going to see it but not eat it? Now the king had appointed an officer on whose hand he had leaned to have charge of the gate. But the people trampled him at the gate. This was one of those who concert in, in Cincinnati situations. And he died. Just as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king had come down to him. So it happened, just as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, Two saves of barley for a shekel, and a sea of fine flour for a shekel, shall be sold tomorrow about this time at the, at the gate of Samaria. Then that officer had answered the man of God. Remember, he said, Now look, if the Lord can open up windows in heaven, he's reviewing the situation, so you can remember. Could such a thing be? And he said, In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat it. And so it happened to him, for all the people trampled him at the gate, and he died. Now, do you want to be that guy? Nobody wants to be that guy. Nobody wants to be trampled to death by a bunch of hungry people because you actually mocked the hope that actually fed them. But there will be those too. There will be those who, by the way, are going to not just say, I, I would love to believe you, but I can't believe you because it just sounds too good to be true. They're going to be those who are going to crawl in your face and mock you for it. Oh, come on. That's impossible. Do you realize how unscientific that is? 
you know that your defying laws we've invented. You ever hear anyone talk about that in regards to Jonah and the big fish? They're like, is it a whale or is it a big fish? Because we've decided that whales aren't fish, they're mammals, right? So somehow the Bible's false because we created those rules. And, that, you know, and it just says big fish, so it's a big fish, could be a whale. Back then, a big fish was anything that swam in the water. Could have been, could have been anything. Could have been a kraken. Who knows what it was? But this we could be sure of. Is that just because man makes up a handful of rules does not mean God's limited by them. Now, please understand, the most brilliant man on earth who thinks he's got God cornered is going to learn otherwise. And that no matter who it, you are, you can think you're too smart for God. Sooner or later, you're going to have to tell him that. And that's not going to look so smart. When you're like, I'm sorry, I was too smart to believe you existed. He's like, no, it had nothing to do with how smart you are. It had everything to do with being stubborn and proud. And back in our sense here, this is how this ends. There are lepers who are heroes. They're the least likely heroes. But they're still lepers. Now there's a big difference there. No matter how much they eat, they're still going to die. And you can think, well, I don't feel like I'm equipped to go and tell people of this hope. Really? Less than a leper? You really think that God wouldn't choose you because what? Because you're not awesome enough? You're clearly awesome enough. Jesus died for you. How much more awesome do you need to be? You're like, but I don't think I have all the answers. Could you tell them where the bread of life is? Could you tell them where the living water is? Could you take them to the cross? But what if they ask questions I can't answer? Well, then you know what? Save that for HQ trivia. The bottom line is, when it comes down to it, you have the answer. Think about all the things that the, the, the lepers couldn't answer. But if you're starving, and you are, I have the answer. Well, let me ask you, what's in tent number 45? Go find out for yourself, man. Ah, that's impossible. There's just no way that everyone's going to be able to eat that much or have that much. You don't realize we are totally vacant. And I look and I look at London and I realize it is a vacant place. There are people starving for hope. And you look, everyone looks like a zombie and they're all, uh, right? And we look at this and we're like, but God, we can flip it like this. And we got to believe that. Because if we don't have that kind of hope, we'll become like that. And that's the worst possible thing that could happen to us. What if? He says, Lord, whenever you want to flip it, flip it, but I want to be ready when you do. I don't want to be the guy at the gate telling everyone that can't happen. You're like, well, why? It can't happen because it hasn't happened yet? Is God restricted to what he's done? I mean, and I just love the fact that he wants to touch lives and he desires no one to, be, to, no one to, be, to perish, but all to come to repentance and all to come to salvation. Now, he won't get that, but he wants it. And he can be refused, but it isn't because he's doing it. Here in our text, as we go to prayer, would you be willing to be one of those lepers? Well then, I'm going to ask a crazy question. Are you willing to ask God to put you in a place where you could gorge yourself in God's goodness to the point where we actually feel like, man, I can't be silent about this if we really come to that realization I think we'll find ourselves overflowing and we'll find ourselves sharing and I don't think we're going to be as worried about the answers we don't have because we have the most important ones is that fair? let's pray Lord I want to thank you for this beautiful text I want to thank you for leading us through it I want to thank you Lord for lepers who do what any human being would do at first. Eat until they can't eat anymore. And take stuff for themselves and then realize there's so much more here than I'll be able to take. And there's so many people out there that need this. And God, I just... We could not have been creative enough to imagine you'd scare them away with hearing something in their heads corporately. I know that wouldn't have been on my script, but it wasn't yours. There was a king who privately had sackcloth on, was trying to show himself a king to everyone else, and I can't help but think of Saul, who did the same. 
in essence. And we don't want to be like the person that mocks. We don't want to be like the person who's faithless, who would say that's impossible or that's a trap. But also, we were those people at times, and I thank you for your mercy. And I pray that we would be patient and loving with those who are. And recognize, even when somebody seems like they're rejecting it, it may just be that they want to believe it. They just don't see how it could be true yet. And if that be the case, then lead us to this place, Lord. Lead us to this place where we can so overflow and demonstrate that. That they would recognize this is the truth. So I pray specifically for this particular group of people, myself included, as we sit here around the table, whatever, Lord, that we would so gorge ourselves on your goodness that we can't help but show and display and overflow on others. Lord, that we don't think we're eking something out like everybody else and then trying to pretend like it's awesome when it's just not. But life in you is awesome. It's abundant and it's amazing. I just pray that we would so dive into that, so enjoy you, and so be so consumed by your goodness and your blessing that all we can do is tell others. Forgive us where we've been silent because we're afraid we can't answer a question that is irrelevant to the need. And let us care enough about others so that as we do gorge ourselves and on you, that we care enough to share. So Lord, this is a day of victory. A good day. May we be bold about what you've done in our lives. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for us. Thank you, Lord, that in doing that, all of our sin and our shame was covered, was paid for, was vanquished. Thank you, just like Scripture promised, you not only died and buried and were buried, but also on the third day rose again, and you offer us new life, and we say yes to that. And we thank you when you tell us that whoever is in you is a new creation. Thank you that we don't have to be the person we were. We are no longer lepers. We're no longer people without feeling. And with that, Lord, cure us of that that these new creations you make of us, that we would be people who celebrate you and bring other people to that and invite other people into that celebration. So Lord, let this be a week of us gorging ourselves on your goodness. May we be so overwhelmed we can't help but share. Even as Peter and John says, we cannot but proclaim the things in which we have seen and heard. Make us so, I pray. In Jesus' name.